the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the program. Follow us at danproftshow.com, where you can get podcasts as well as you can on Spotify and iTunes. And... Uh, at Dan Prof Show on social media, uh, Donald Trump yesterday responding to former President Obama's remarks at the DNC before he made them, because, of course, excerpts of his speech were leaked. I thought Trump made a, a key point in his response to the press corps looking to pick fight between the two presidents, of course. President Obama did not do a good job. And the reason I'm here is because of President Obama and Joe Biden, because if they did a good job, I wouldn't be here. And probably if they did a good job, I wouldn't have even run. I would have been very happy. I enjoyed my previous life very much. But they did such a bad job that I stand before you as president. You know, it's uh, axiomatic. That's, that's a true statement he makes. It's something, it's amazing. The press hasn't learned the lesson any better than the Democrat socialists have. Thus the phenomenon of the Obama-Trump voter. <laughs> this is quantifiable. This is not that complicated, but he's right, isn't he? They rejected the policy choices of the Obama-Biden years, and the response from the Democrat socialists has been to become more socialist and more intolerant about uh, the allegiance to their socialist policies. Seems like something that's going to boomerang. For uh, additional analysis on this, we're pleased to be uh, joined again by former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, a 2012, a 2012 presidential candidate, of course, and New York Times bestselling author of the recently released book, Trump and the American Future, Solving the Great Problems of Our Time. Speaker Gingrich, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be with you, and I think you put your finger on something that's very real. You know, it, it is kind of ironic. It's always a difficult thing for a former president in this kind of a setting. As you point out, uh, had he been doing a great job, uh, Hillary Clinton probably would have won. But, in fact, the country was unhappy. Uh, the country felt that uh, the, the economy was not recovering. They felt that the policies were too radical. Uh, and they felt that uh, foreign policy wasn't working. And so, you know, they, they picked a guy who's a total outsider. One of the most amazing things is the way in which Trump came literally from outside the whole system to uh, beat 15 Republicans and then pivoted and uh, was able to do the same thing uh, to Hillary. I mean, it, it's... A remarkable achievement on his part, but the environment had to be right for that to happen. And uh, the country had to be prepared for a true outsider. Right. Where he couldn't have won. Right. And and uh, where do you sort of have the race? What's your handle on the race right now? As they're wrapping up their convention, the Democrats and uh, Republicans are preparing for theirs. The president preparing for uh, his convention. It seems like um, he has um, gotten his legs back underneath him over the last couple three weeks. To me. Well, I think that he will almost certainly win. I, I, I do a regular news, newsletter that's free at Gingrich 360, and I've done several recently 
uh, both on Kamala Harris, who I think is a disaster as a presidential vice presidential choice, uh, but also on the ticket at large. I think the the challenge is, you know, when when, when Rasmussen reports that 55% of the country believes Biden would not survive four years, and 38% believe that he has a severe cognitive problem, they, they have a much bigger mountain to climb. And while the news media has been protecting him and covering for him and doing all they could, in the long run, I think it becomes much harder for him to survive any kind of serious scrutiny. Uh, develop uh, your view on Kamala Harris a little bit more, why you think that was uh, such a disastrous pick for, for Biden. Well, I think, I, look, I did two different newsletters about her. One, one just points out that she's the most anti-Catholic bigot to be nominated in modern times, and I go through step by step on her various positions and comments and attitudes. And I think when you, when you look at what percent of the Latino community is, is Catholic and you look at the Catholic vote in, in general, it's about a fourth of the country. Uh, that's a big chunk to decide to alienate. And then second, <clears throat> look at the actual track record. She was at 15% last summer. She dropped to 4%. She was running fourth in the African-American community. Biden himself had eight times as many black votes as she did. She was running fourth in California, and 61% of Californians wanted her to drop out. Now, I think it's hard to explain why they picked her. I think it probably was to raise money because she's got huge ties in Hollywood and Silicon Valley in New York. So she's probably an enormous fundraiser. But nothing in her performance indicates that, that uh, she's going to be a good candidate. When she was asked the other day, I don't know if you saw this, Stephen Colbert asked her, you know, how could she explain the vicious attacks on, on Biden and now endorsing Biden? And she laughed at him and said, it was a debate as though lying in a debate is perfectly normal. And then she repeated it twice, mm -hmm. as though this all made it clear that it's okay to lie. There's a tape of her when she's running for attorney general saying, I really am a radical. So, you know, I think that th those are just the sort of things we're, we're, we're facing. And I think it makes her very uh, questionable from my perspective that she's going to be able to uh, uh, in any way uh, carry the ticket for very long. You know, running at the level... When she ran for attorney general and she ran for the U.S. Senate, she could outraise her opponents and she could drown them in money. You can't do this at the presidential level. It's a yeah. very different business. Yeah, and the other thing it seems to me where she doesn't help Biden is Biden was starting to feel uh, the drag of being tagged as someone who is going to be beholden to the most radical elements in the Democrat Socialist Party, some of what you see playing out in the streets of America. Well, Kamala Harris comes in and she's got the prosecutor and attorney general credential, but she also has what you're describing, which is that she's a chameleon. She doesn't really believe in anything other beyond her own ambition. And so that, that makes her thus susceptible to wherever the center of gravity is. And that is, again, with the most radical elements of that party. Uh, so it just seems to me that it she accentuates the tag that the Trump campaign wants to put on Joe Biden. Oh, I think that's right. And I think that as a result, I think she'll turn out to be a very weak candidate. I think Biden himself, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm, I'm looking forward uh, to seeing his speech um, because I really want to see, one, does he actually give the speech or they pre-taped it? Right. Two, what, what is he trying to say? You know, because they're, they're sort of schizophrenic. They want to tell you they're moderates because they know that's where they should be politically. On the other hand, um, they are... Uh, faced with the reality that 
you know, the opening night is Bernie Sanders saying, I really am a socialist, and I am thrilled that Joe Biden is going to be such a radical, in fact, he'll be the most radical president since Franklin Roosevelt uh, in the 1930s. Well, which version are we supposed to vote for? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the, 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 the D.C. press corps analysis of that was, see, there's not going to be any enthusiasm problem this time around because Bernie and his supporters are behind Joe because Bernie's solidly behind Joe in the way he wasn't with Hillary. Well, that turns out to be a two-edged sword because the reason the, the Democrat establishment rallied around <laughs> Biden to eliminate Bernie is because he couldn't win a general election. So aligning with Bernie and saying, I'm Bernie, I'm just a surrogate for Bernie, <laughs> alienates the voters you need in those swing states. If you watch. You know, Biden was doing a pretty good job of what Jimmy Carter used to do, which is be a Rorschach test. Mm -hmm. You could project onto Biden whatever you wanted to, so you could decide to vote for him. All of a sudden, Biden finds himself in a situation where that doesn't quite work anymore. And now he's got this problem that um, he's going to be faced with um, defining himself. And in many ways, picking Kamala Harris was a very big definitional moment because when, when people tell you that she is the most liberal member of the Senate based on voting, it's important to think about what that means. That means she is to the left of Bernie Sanders, and she is to the left of Elizabeth Warren. Now, can you imagine how hard it is to get to the left of Sanders and Warren? Right. And I don't think it's an afterthought. I think, I think she's a genuine San Francisco radical, just as Pelosi is. I think they're carrying the virus of San Francisco left-wingism. And I think she doesn't even, because she's surrounded by left-wingers, she doesn't even have any idea how far to the left she is. And, of course, the news media now is so bad that they, they, they are to her left. So they think she's a centrist because they're crazy. And I think that that's why uh, this is going to become a campaign that's very interesting and very different. And, and with respect to um, uh, Bill Clinton, the choice to bring Bill Clinton back for uh, day two, uh, even against the backdrop of the Ghislaine Maxwell indictment and all the swirl around Bill Clinton and, and that uh, that uh, disgusting business of the Epstein human trafficking ring. Uh, but it, first of all, if uh, he just feels so old and, and passe, especially for what the Democrat Party is today. What, what was the value of bringing him out to sort of frame the race for the final two days? I don't think they can help themselves. Yeah. I mean, Hillary's still a huge factor. Uh, having Hillary and not Bill would have been a big story in its own right. I think they were hoping that they could uh, just sort of, you know, slide him out there, get it over with, and move on. He is uh, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, 2012 presidential candidate, New York Times bestselling author of the recently released Trump and the American Future, Solving the Great Problems of Our Time. Speaker Gingrich, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Thank you. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I just want to build off our conversation before the break with former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. Talk a little bit more about uh, former President Obama and his uh, female impersonator, Kamala Harris, their remarks on Wednesday evening. Uh, Kamala took a bit, big hit of hopium before she uh, took the stage. That was clear, particularly the first seven minutes, telling her personal story. 
before she transitioned into the genuflection before the identitarians uh, and then closed with, uh, you know, her uh, great affinity for Joe Biden. Uh, but 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 first, uh, as I said, former President Obama. So here's how he you know framed the uh, decision that um, I shouldn't say decision. Here's how he framed the Trump presidency from, you know, uh, the perspective of somebody who met with him in the Oval Office. That Donald Trump might show some interest in taking the job seriously. That he might come to feel the weight of the office and discover some reverence for the democracy that had been placed in his care. But he never did. For close to four years now, he has shown no interest in putting in the work. It's an odd statement to make uh, with respect to a president who has uh, so many accomplishments to point to and efforts and furtherance of the things he said he would do to point to as well, whether you like them or don't, to suggest he's just uh, aloof and not participating in uh, his presidency. It just doesn't square. So I I don't know. I think that's sort of a a weak case. Not sort of. It is a weak case. And even... uh, the most diehard Obama supporters are going to have a problem laying that label on Trump. But Obama then did something else, and Holman Jenkins picked up on this too because it's something he started doing in the podcast world, and he brought over a sort of milder version of it to uh, his speech for the convention, and that's, you know, the how they win. He's going to steal the election. They're trying to starve was the word he used in his podcast, The Post Office. This president and those in power, those who benefit from keeping things the way they are, they are counting on your cynicism. They know they can't win you over with their policies. So they're hoping to make it as hard as possible for you to vote and to convince you that your vote does not matter. That is how they win. That is how they get to keep making decisions that affect your life and the lives of the people you love. That's how the economy will keep getting skewed to the wealthy and well-connected. Right. Uh, here's um, the, the whole deal about this post office conspiracy theorizing that uh, President Obama has now engaged in as well. As Holman Jenkins writes in the journal, it's completely made up. Completely made up. He also notes the irony uh, of Obama worrying about the viability of the post office when, in fact, the during his time as president, the post office saw a 32 percent collapse in first class mail volume. So as Jenkins writes, he's as guilty as anyone for not forcing the post office to adapt to a changing market. But, of course, they've given in to any reforms now to um, advance their solubility because of the politicization and the conspiracy theorizing. Uh, Any voting related mail will be a small fraction of normal mail volume. We know this. Yes, Trump uh, wasn't specific enough with his response in the early stages of this ginned up conspiracy theory. But it, it, it doesn't absolve those who are nonetheless perpetrating it. Uh, and uh, as J- Jenkins goes on to write. 
An enduring puzzle is why I'm supposed to be outraged by Mr. Trump's shameless birtherism. Is it because an outsider was competing with insiders at their own game of nonstop mendacity and disingenuousness? Uh, there's little evidence of mail in or absentee ballot vote fraud. That's how the standard media reports the that issue, right? It's like saying bank robberies are rare, so let's move money from the vault and pile it up in the middle of the lobby. Elections, in fact, are high on the list of things that people like to steal and will steal if opportunities are available. So it is um, not an inconsequential thing to make opportunities available. Uh, And, again, we talked about on the show yesterday to to a great extent with John Solomon, the continued beating of the drum of Russian collusion – uh, Ullman Jenkins, President Obama's ads against Mitt Romney would have been castigated by the media as demagogic and dishonest if Obama hadn't been a Democrat. He played down Russia meddling when he thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. Then he did all he could to launch the Russian collusion fraud on his way out the door. And uh, this is your, the protector of the integrity of elections, right? This is meddling was happening on his watch while he's downplaying it because he's thinking that he's going to get an outcome. And when he doesn't get that outcome, then it's the pivot to undo the 2016 election. Uh, Jenkins has an interesting take in conclusion, just thinking about the strategic voter, uh, what uh, she may do in this election cycle where you have competing claims of a rigged election. The suggestion that uh, it's illegitimate and, of course, most prominently now with this post office conspiracy theory that. President Obama used the convention to continue to perpetrate. Those claiming such concern for President Trump undermining the institutions of our representative republic, threatening their uh, credibility with the public and thus their legitimacy in the public's mind, including with the possibility of a presidential election outcome. Jenkins uh, writes, what's a strategic voter to do? In recent years, she might have voted for the expected losers party to keep the expected winner in check, gridlock. This year, she might vote for the candidate who seems most likely to win. Why? To provide a big enough margin to stop the election lawyers from creating chaos and spinning tails to delegitimize the victor, as Hillary Clinton and Democrats did after 2016. Oh, and by the way, continue to do well into 2020. And don't forget. Joe and Kamala can win by three million votes and still lose. Take it from me. So we need numbers overwhelming so Trump can't sneak or steal his way to victory. Text vote 30330 to get started. Uh Uh-huh. There's the old hell dog, right? President Obama is a close to, I just wanted to remark upon in passing. Stay safe. Uh Uh-huh. Stay safe. Uh, I uh, invoke Heather McDonald. Uh, who uh, on this show in response to everybody telling everybody to stay safe as if that's some genuine concern rather than a canned political line to drive a particular political viewpoint, which it absolutely is when it's coming from the mouth of Barack Obama. How about stay wise, stay informed, stay courageous? How about those stays? We'll be back with more. We'll, after the break, we'll pick up uh, the piece on Kamala Harris I wanted to get to. Uh, her speechifying on the topic of race in the context of, a, as I said, a, a pay on to identity politics. 
uh, versus what she said back uh, when she was running for president, as Newt Gingrich mentioned, and then has now just since dismissed as, oh, well, that's just in the debate. And anything goes in the debate. You're not bounded by the truth in the debate. More right up. Show.com. Welcome back to the show, and let's get right to Kamala. Kamala's remarks yesterday, first seven minutes, uh, all, um, you know, audacity of hope and overcoming the odds, you know, the, the stories that every politician tells that uh, they end up being the hero in, right? Beating the odds, the, the David versus the Goliath and so forth. Kamala Harris, um, on uh, the issue of uh, the virus, and you know how Cuomo turned the virus into a metaphor for our politics? COVID is our politics. Uh, now Kamala has turned it into COVID is a proxy for our race relations. COVID is a metaphor for systemic racism. This is even more tortured than Andrew Cuomo's version. And while this virus touches us all, we got to be honest, it is not an equal opportunity offender. Black, Latino, and indigenous people are suffering and dying disproportionately. And this is not a coincidence. It is the effect of structural racism, of inequities in education and technology, health care and housing, job security and transportation, the injustice in reproductive and maternal health care, in the excessive use of force by police, and in our broader criminal justice system. This virus, it has no eyes, and yet it knows exactly how we see each other and how we treat each other. And let's be clear, there is no vaccine for racism. What? I suppose anthropomorphizing COVID-19 is her way of being poetic. The virus that has no eyes but sees all. It's bizarre, isn't it? Um, By the way, on the issue of systemic racism then, Let's recount who we're talking about uh, and what Kamala uh, Kamala Harris was saying in the primary campaign when she was running for president versus what she's saying today, as uh, we touched upon with uh, Speaker Gingrich. The moment where she was that girl, another moment where Kamala tried to be poetic, but it comes across as very canned, doesn't it? So on the issue of race, I couldn't agree more that this is an issue that is still not being talked about truthfully and honestly. I, there is not a black man I know, be he a relative, a friend, or a co-worker who has not been the subject of some form of profiling or discrimination. Growing up, my sister and I had to deal with the neighbor who told us her parents couldn't play with us because, she, because we were black. And I will say also that, that in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden, Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you 
when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Uh, it was so canned that uh, Saturday Night Live felt uh, perfectly comfortable parodying that moment between uh, Harris and Biden. With, of course, Maya Rudolph in the role of Reparation H. Um, if that's true, Kamala, you must be very hurt by affiliating with the Democrat Party, right? The party of Bob Byrd in your lifetime, your political lifetime, much less your actual lifetime. Uh, this is not to say that Kamala Harris, her sister, didn't uh, suffer discrimination or untoward words or what have you. I'm sure they did. Yeah, this is a messy business interacting in a, a country of 330 million people. But uh, she is now saying, I'm running with Joe Biden, proud to be the vice president. Historic, right? Historic, historic, historic. So proud to be with Joe Biden because I don't think he's a racist. That's one of those backhanded compliments, which is uh, all that identitarians can muster against their targets. As Biden was to Kamala in the primary, now he is a conduit from a target to a conduit. Uh, her interests change, so her position changes. Yeah, I think that's going to be less and less sellable the more and more people focus in on the choice on November 3rd. This is Dan Proff. The more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. It's always fun to talk to a cabinet-level official, particularly with so much going on in our interior with America's lands. Uh, we're pleased to be joined by David Bernhardt. He is the United States Secretary of the Interior. Uh, Secretary Bernhardt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, the uh, uh, announcement uh, this week about the plan for oil and gas uh, leasing in Anwar, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which has long been a political football up there in Alaska. Uh, and, uh, describe what uh, the president has done, what your uh, agency is doing uh, as uh, uh, significant money is going into uh, a larger restoration of parks and public lands simultaneously. Well, you're exactly right about the uh, major investment the president, the president and the Congress made under the Great American Outdoors Act. But to respond first to Anwar, uh, the, the decision uh, we rendered on uh, Monday of this week was was really pretty straightforward because Congress has told us, and the president signed into law, legislation that says thou 
we'll create a leasing program. And so we formally established the leasing program, and it really is the gold standard of the world in terms of, uh, um, of, of standards. But here, here's what the president did and what Congress did. They, ANWR has been discussed as an issue, as you said, a political football for over 30 years, really since 1987 was when um, a prior Secretary of the Interior sent the proposal to Congress. And Congress made the decision in bipartisan legislation in a, in a tax bill and said, we want to use this area um, to explore for oil and gas and development and use that as a revenue raiser to help pay for uh, tax um, uh, tax uh, provisions. And so that's what Congress said to do. And we're just uh, moving forward with um, the program to do exactly that. In the interim, as you mentioned, just two weeks ago, the president signed the Great American Outdoors Act. And the really creative thing that that legislation does is establish two incredible funds. One fund to um, pay for fixing deferred maintenance uh, challenges on public lands, particularly our national parks and Indian schools and wildlife refuges and forest service lands. It's an incredible investment in recreation and conservation, but it also has a separate fund of $900 million a year forever devoted to um, enhancing uh, recreation opportunities and preserving uh, land and habitat. And all of those things together in one form or another are, are funded out of uh, revenues from energy and resource development. And so this, this has been a idea um, that has existed for a very long time to take, um, and when we develop natural resources, reinvest that money in recreation, opportunities for the American people in uh, habitat opportunities for the American people and ensure that they are uh, seeing the benefit of these uh, resource developments. And that is well outside of the economic development, the tremendous value development of revenue that comes from these um, activities. And so it's a very significant act and probably the largest funding and conservation initiatives, certainly in my lifetime. Well, so so talk a little bit more about the, the 1.5 million acres in the Arctic um, National Wildlife Refuge that you're going to lease. Uh, it was some, I think I saw a Department of Energy estimate uh, $10, billion, 10 billion, excuse me, barrels of oil in terms of the, right. the, and, the and, projected and reserve. Over 22, and over $22 billion of uh, of of revenue over the life of the program. So you're talking about that. And that will be reinvested. Energy. That's going to be uh, absolutely right. That's I the mean, reinvestment that's, that's, piece. Yeah. I mean, so, so you're talking about a tremendous amount of revenue, a tremendous amount of uh, exploration. And remember um, that exploration activity um, takes place. And then the facilities would be on 2000 acres of surface uh, land in a 19.3 million acre refuge overall, <clears throat> which is really pretty, um, you know, um, small relative, qu- qu- yeah. Qu- small, yeah, small relative. Go back to the monuments and, and talk about your relationship with and your agency's relationship with governors and mayors, as uh, we have seen so much um, uh, vandalism and destruction of our monument uh, of public monuments around the country. Well, uh, the president is um, very, very um, clear in his directives to uh, me and other federal land managers that we will, number one, protect uh, our monuments. Um, He loves our country. And um, 
and he was uh, deeply troubled by the uh, criminal behavior of folks. And so he set up a task force that I'm in charge of um, that did several things. It said, number one, um, let's protect the monuments. Number two, um, let's work um, to tell America's story. And so we're actually in the process of uh, developing a National Garden of American Heroes. And the governors and county commissioners and local elected officials have all been participating in suggesting places for the garden and even suggesting places, or sorry, even suggesting individuals who might need, who would, it would be appropriate to put in this garden. So on one hand, this is a very positive thing. On the side of the criminals, um, they, they needed to understand, I think, that um, this is not a jaywalking type of situation. You destroy a monument, you're going to go to jail. And the president gave clear direction and that my job is to protect the monuments, get the resources I need to do it, which I have done and am doing. And two, um, when the, these events happen, we're going to investigate, we're going to prosecute, and um, you're going to jail over it. And it's a very significant crime. And people are getting that message. I mean, we, we have seen a change. And then on top of that, we're working very closely with governors. If they have non-federal monuments that they um, have challenges with, we're, we're offering to work with them, uh, both us, uh, the National Endowment for Humanities and others, are all members of this task force. And we've had a lot of collaboration about addressing the issues. The reality is people can decide. There are processes to go about if you want to change a monument. But self-help and um, destruction by criminals is not one of the legitimate options. Secondly, if you want to protest um, peacefully, the Park Service welcomes you. We welcome people protesting. Um, that's We believe and will fight and defend the First Amendment for, for everybody. But if you come there to destroy, to be a criminal, um, we're going to put you in jail. It's just that simple. He is David Bernhardt. He is the United States Secretary of the Interior. Secretary Bernhardt, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Okay, uh, Tom Brenneman, who is an announcer for the Reds, uh, works for Fox Sports, uh, and uh, was a longtime announcer uh, in Chicago, too, but that was a long time ago. Anyway, a hot mic moment. Hot mic moment caught Tom Brenneman saying something during a, a Reds-Royals doubleheader that he shouldn't have said. He used a, a slur against gay people, the F word. Okay, don't have to say it. But it, coming back out of a break, he said something like one of the F word capitals of the world uh, slur for a gay man, gay person. So he was taken off the air. He's now since been suspended. But he came back on the air before he was taken off and suspended completely that day. This was Wednesday. And he said um, he, he, he tried to offer uh, this heartfelt on-air apology, and he, and he went full Brockmire. I'll explain. I made a comment earlier tonight that uh, I guess uh, went out over the air that I am deeply ashamed of. If I have hurt anyone out there, I can't tell you how much I say from the bottom of my heart, I'm so very, very sorry. I pride myself and think of myself as a, a man of faith, 
as there's a drive in a deep left field by Castellanos. It will be a home run. And so that'll make it a 4 nothing ball game. As I was saying. I don't know if I'm going to be putting on this headset again. I don't know if it's going to be for the Reds. I don't know if it's going to be for my bosses at Fox. I'm going to apologize for the people who signed my paycheck for the Reds, for Fox Sports Ohio. Uh, okay, we get it. I mean, Tom, what are you doing? I'm not, this isn't laughing at the word he used. This is just the, you know, I'm very sorry for what I did. Heartfelt apology. Uh, I consider myself a man of faith. There's a shot in the gap. That's going to be extra basis anyway, as I was saying. I mean, it, is, it was reminiscent of one of the funniest opening scenes of a television series I've ever seen, and it's Hank Azaria as Brockmeyer, the sort of washed-out uh, baseball announcer. Now, this is not PG, all right? This is a very raunchy show, or it was. It's been canceled now. But, but this is just one of the great meltdowns in the booth ever. Basically, Brenneman was doing a cleaned-up version of what Brockmeyer did. Folks, here's the truth. Today is the 20th anniversary of the very first time that I told my lovely wife, Lucy, that I loved her. And ever since that day, as many of you know, I've signed off every single game the exact same way with a message to her. Lucy, put supper on the stove, my dear, because this ball game is over. Please imagine my surprise when I opened my front door to find about a half dozen naked folks sprawled out in my living room, <laughs> engaged in what can only be described as a desperate and a hungry kind of a lovemaking. Yeah, yeah. And right in the center of it all was my wife, my wife Lucy. She was wearing a strap on and she was on our neighbor Bob Greenwald. And folks, I do mean right in the ass. Fastball misses. Just low. Count goes full. Three and two. Did he just say strap on? Hey, for you kids at home, uh, strap on is a belt with a on it that mommies use to daddies as a bias strikes out on a high fastball. Now to bring Clark up to bat. Clark having himself a heck of an afternoon with two doubles. Bob Greenwald. Bob Greenwald. That two-faced SOB I hosted his kids bar mitzvah. Brockmeyer got a second chance in the series, but he was relegated to the minors. Hopefully Brenneman gets to keep his major league gig. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. The two uh, featured speakers at last night's Democrat Socialist National Convention, former President Barack Obama and uh, a woman trying to imitate him, uh, the uh, first offering, the former president, he had uh, this to say about Donald Trump, what he hoped for, and his hopes, of course, were dashed. That Donald Trump might show some interest in taking the job seriously, that he might come to feel the weight of the office and discover some reverence for the democracy that had been placed in his care. But he never did. For close to four years now, he has shown no interest in putting in the work, no interest in finding common ground, no interest in using the awesome power of his office to help anyone but himself and his friends. And uh, now pull up a seat, why don't you? And uh, let me let Barack Obama tell you about his friend, his brother, Joe. So let me tell you about my friend, Joe Biden. Twelve years ago, when I began my search for a vice president, 
I didn't know I'd end up finding a brother. Joe and I come from different places, different generations, but what I quickly came to admire about Joe Biden is his resilience, born of too much struggle, his empathy, born of too much grief. Joe is a man who learned early on to treat every person he meets with respect and dignity, living by the words his parents taught him. No one's better than you, Joe, but you're better than nobody. That empathy, that decency, the belief that everybody counts, that's who Joe is. Mm. A lot of uh, biography telling and stylistic characterizations of uh, the candidates, both. Not surprising. But it was her trying to impersonate Barack Obama, I thought, for much of the speech, both in terms of the struggle as well as the identitarian politics, which she soft-pedaled. It was there. It was clear, but it was soft-pedaled. It was much more room temperature than Kamala has shown a willingness to be, at least when she was a presidential candidate. And frankly, from some of the characterizations of her from former staff and San Francisco area media, then then she's shown herself in previous iterations of her life before she was a vice presidential nominee. Uh, She um, concluded, though, this... um, this was the flourish, right? So this is the the close and the ask. Make your own assessment. Let's fight with hope. Let's fight with confidence in ourselves right. and a commitment to each other, to the America we know is possible, the America we love. And years from now, this moment will have passed, and our children and our grandchildren will look in our eyes And they're going to ask us, where were you when the stakes were so high? They will ask us, what was it like? And we will tell them, we will tell them not just how we felt. We will tell them what we did. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I just it just seems like it's reheated, uh, reheated Obama isms from a decade ago. But I mean, again, she's running with somebody who plagiarizes uh, British politicians for his speechifying. So, I mean, I guess that's par for the course. For more on all of this and how it may play in the Badger's Day, we're pleased to be joined by Ryan, Brian Reisinger, writer and conservative operative, who served as a spokesman for Senators Lamar Alexander, as well as Ron Johnson and Governor Scott Walker. Currently serves as president and chief operating officer of Platform Communications. Brian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan, thanks for having me. You know, I mean, uh, how does uh, what you heard this week from Clinton and Obama and Kamala and, you know, the sense that people have of Joe Biden sort of hail fellow, well met, but maybe not the most competent guy you're ever going to run across? It seems to be where a lot of people are with Biden at this point. I mean, how does that play in the Badger State right now? You know, it's difficult to say fully how it's going to play because they're not here. I heard your lead in there about Barack Obama talking about the things he thinks that our president isn't interested in. Well, the Democrats have shown no interest in actually coming to Wisconsin. They talk a big game. They've helped put a spotlight on Wisconsin as the top battleground in the country after Republicans and Donald Trump won it in 2016. But they're not here. And so they're committing, and Joe Biden is committing, kind of that Cardinal Clinton sin as far as Wisconsinites are concerned. And I think it's a real mistake. You know, it's it's interesting you point that out because there's like barely any mention of Wisconsin. It doesn't, you, no, nobody, nobody, I mean, if you're not paying attention, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know where they would, they are actually. Right. What about uh, in urban and suburban Wisconsin? You've had some problems in Milwaukee. You had uh, that uh, Trump supporter 
black gentleman who was murdered. I don't know if there's been yeah. any progress in that case. I mean, that was a high profile case as part of the larger discussion of the unrest and the violence, the spike in violence across America's major cities, Milwaukee being one of them. And um, there's no mention of law and order at this convention three days in. I mean, virtually no mention. And I just wonder how that plays in urban and suburban Wisconsin. Yeah, the Democrats are certainly making a mistake and they're overreaching. The question will be, can we break through with the facts, given the media environment, given the political environment, given all the crises that tend to overlay the ability for us to get the real facts out there? But I think you're touching on something that's really important that actually ties back to, to something in the piece from National Review this week that I did, which is that in Wisconsin, Republicans have found a way to activate their base, mobilize those rural voters, but also win over those swing voters in suburban areas. And we do that by talking about our values, talking about bold reforms, and people be basically saying, hey, these are people who did what they said they were going to do. And law and order is one of those issues that has historically moved the Milwaukee suburbs, has moved key swing areas into our camp. So it's, it's absolutely something that's an opportunity for conservatives if we can do it in the right way. And it's absolutely something the Democrats have completely lost sight of. Uh, and and what, so with respect to Wisconsin, I, I know obviously the composition of the electorate is different in a presidential than in the midterms uh, 2018, but you did have a, a governor's race. And um, what's the lesson from Scott Walker's narrow loss there? Yeah, you know, the lesson is that there's really no room for error in Wisconsin um, when it comes down to our elections. When you take a look at the vote returns from 2012 to 2018, this is true. Wisconsin is actually the most evenly balanced state mathematically of any state in the country. So the polls jump around, bounce around. Everybody knows that Wisconsin's a battleground. But when you get down to the math and you look at how people actually vote from 2012 to 2018, it's the most evenly balanced state. So we went from the Walker recall where he was able to completely upset the odds, shake up the status quo, defy the political reality. You get to 2018 where there's an incredibly difficult environment for Republicans. I mean, it was a very rough political environment. That's a natural thing, right, for a midterm year for a party that controls all of state and federal government, there's going to be a little bit of a snapback. Voters, some voters are just going to kind of stop and think, hey, do we want to do something a little different here? Um, so that's a very natural thing, but it was a very potent environment. And in Wisconsin, there's no room for error in a situation like that. So, I mean, think about Wisconsin as an, a swing state again in, in, in November and the convention next week for the uh, Republicans. What, what do Trump, Pence and team need to do? What should they be communicating to uh uh, cheeseheads, as as well as those with the Midwestern sensibility that they need to win over again. Yeah, they need to be able to break through with the president's record of rebuilding the economy. He did it once. He's working on doing it again on rebuilding the military and on keeping communities are safe. Really, that American comeback, um, that's very much something that's worked in Wisconsin for a long time. And it does get at the issue of what happened in 2018 as well. In order to win in Wisconsin, you have to mobilize the base with issues that resonate with us conservatives. And you also, they have to win over that swing electorate. And if we're going to do that, it has to be about the president's record, the fact that he's done what he said he was going to do, appealing both to you know the people who are very strong supporters of his and the people who are trying to decide between that and some of what the Democrats are offering. I think some of the issues that you're touching on are, are going to be the key to that. Uh, what about uh, law and order as an issue uh, in Wisconsin, including uh, people that are in more rural areas but are looking at what's going on in big cities like everybody is and saying, I got my issues with Trump, but uh, I can't be on that side. I can't be for sort of lawlessness that's being tacitly supported by the Democrats. Yeah, it's it's a very potent issue. I mean, you know, look no further than this Wisconsin state capitol where there was a statue of 
Colonel Haig, who's literally an abolitionist that was torn down. I mean, yeah. a proud tribute yeah. to anti-slavery movement, torn down by a mob. Um, you combine that with the, the destruction to businesses and livelihoods, the violence against people. It is absolutely something that the rest of the state um, recoils against. You know, they say Madison is, you know, a couple of square miles surrounded by reality. And those people who live in reality are, are recoiling in horror at what they've been seeing. So if we can draw that picture and we can do it without looking like we're um, turning away from, from people who are different than us. Um, I think it's, it's going to be a real recipe to break through with a different message. He is Brian Reisinger, writer and conservative operative, served as a spokesman for U.S. Senators Lamar Alexander and Ron Johnson, as well as Governor Scott Walker. Currently the President Chief Operating Officer of Platform Communications, and uh, you can uh, check his whole piece on the Badger State Unite or Die, the making of the Badger State Battleground. NationalReview.com will also tweet it out. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. You can never surrender And if your path won't lead you home You can never surrender Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, let's talk a little law and order following our conversation with Brian Ressinger from uh, from Wisconsin, uh, excuse me, talking about uh, the Badger State being a swing state again and just exactly what it may come down to, as he was describing. Law and order, Wisconsin, this is something, this, these cultural norms and um, the stuff that I think generates quiet rage that may express itself at the ballot box. Wisconsin Department of Corrections Secretary Kevin Carr saying in a recent memo that DOC staffers should use first person language such as clients and persons in our care instead of inmates. I use the term persons in our care when I talk about adults in our custody, youth for those within the Division of Juvenile Correction and clients for those under court supervision, said the Wisconsin Department of Corrections director. I do this because I believe we have a moral obligation to humanize the persons we're working with. Human beings are fallible and understanding and recognizing this will help DOC's efforts to set persons in our care on a better path. Yeah. First, the language is corrupted. Then man is corrupted. This is not a speech code, as it were, but it is a professional norm that this Department of Corrections director is trying to advance. It's very ink-sockish. I recognize people are fallible. I mean, all the things that you was so stipulate to, that's how the left does it, particularly on the matter of law and order. Well, you know, there's this problem. People make mistakes. I know people make mistakes. People can reform themselves. People need to be forgiven. Yes, they can reform themselves. Yes, there is such a thing as reconciliation. And so it therefore logically leads to calling them clients rather than inmates. No, actually, that doesn't logically follow. In point of fact, part of the punishment is not dehumanizing anybody, but it's recognizing that you have the shame of wearing this label for what you've done. And now you should think about atoning if you do feel shame. If you don't want to be that person, if you don't want to be known as an offender or ex-offender your entire life, then you should do something to make that label a part of your past as opposed to trying to sanitize their present. Big difference. And by the way, again, I just go back to this because I'm a bit baffled by this indifference the Democrat socialists have to even offer lip service to law enforcement, offer lip service to the rule of law, even if you don't want to talk about law enforcement, if you just want to talk in the abstract about the rule of law and we have to protect people 
in our cities. We can't allow people to be assaulted. Anything like that. You got you've got nothing at the Democrat Socialist Convention. And meanwhile, the defund police movement is still very much afoot. And so it will be very much top of mind to residents of metropolitan areas, whether they're in the, the big city proper or in the outlying areas. Our friend Jazz Shaw over at HotAir.com brings us to this from Denver, Colorado. A councilwoman there, Candy Cedabaca, drafted a proposal to release, replace the Denver Police Department with a peace force. The vast majority of those officers would be unarmed and act more as a mobile counseling service than anything else. Mobile counseling service for the rioting that's been going on in places like Chicago and Portland and Seattle and Minneapolis and elsewhere. Mobilized, a uh, mobile counseling service. Oh, okay. Few trained and armed officers kept on hand in case of an emergency. You know, they're behind the emergency glass. You break them out if you need them. But otherwise, we'll just stick to counseling. Now, the Denver City Council voted down her proposal 11 to 1. So, oh, well, so you got one crank. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Hold the phone. It's not over. Jazz Shaw makes the point. The reason he suggests that that defeat may be temporary is it sounds like the council is very much divided in their opinions on the idea of the peace force. Some members voted against it because they thought the councilwoman who sponsored it moved too quickly. They wanted to get more constituent feedback, wanted to slow down the process a little bit, but they weren't dismissing it out of hand. Now, the mayor of Denver, Michael Hancock, dismissed it out of hand, calling it reckless and irresponsible. But the city council did not. So we'll see. What do we have in Portland this week? On night 82 of the riots... Police reported a marauding mob of several hundred rioters set fire to the Multnomah County building just across the river from their previous favorite targets in downtown Portland. And what is the response? More psychobabble from the office holders? The county chairman, Deborah Kafori, who characterized these domestic terrorists as largely peaceful. Here, I love this, too. This is what she said about uh, those who uh, set fire to the county building. She's the county board chairman. We understand that the demonstration that took place in front of the uh, Multnomah building was largely peaceful until some of those who were part of the demonstration broke windows and set fire in the Office of Community Involvement. Well, that's one way to get involved in the community. Yeah. Largely peaceful until it wasn't. This whole idea uh, that the left is advancing, largely peaceful, and then there's a few agitators that hijack the peaceful event. Now, there may be people that are peaceful and that don't like the violence in some of these instances. I'm sure there are. But this idea that this is all being hijacked by a few against the wishes of the many, no. Generally speaking, no. Here's a concept for consideration. The appearance of peacefulness to provide cover for the violence that the majority is supportive of. Don't let politicians get away with this uh, and, and colleagues, people in your social circle get away with this idea. Yeah, mostly peaceful. And then it got hijacked by a couple of ne'er-do-wells. And that's when everything went awry. But, you know, most of the people are going to be. No, no, no. Most of the people are complicit with the acts of violence that a few of the people are committing. And in some cases, uh, a hell of a lot more than a few, as we've seen in Chicago more recently, for example. And uh, just so we're clear, corporate funded Black Lives Matter that uh, is busy looting businesses that fund them. I thought I was paying you protection money, and then you go steal my ATM, says PNC Bank. This is remarkable, the cowardice, and, and also the stupidity. I, I mean, in a sense, I'm glad for those who wear the Black Lives Matter propaganda because they identify themselves to the world as dopes and or sentimental barbarians. That's how you know you're facing one. Uh, Ariel Atkins is a Black Lives Matter organizer, a corporate-funded Black Lives Matter organizer in Chicago. She said in a recent interview with the NPR station in Chicago, a lot of people are really attacking our pages, social media pages. They're like, oh, you support the looters. And yeah, we do 100 percent. 
That's reparations. And like however people choose to protest, especially if it was definitely in line with what happened uh, in, in a, after a Southside shooting, police involved shooting, which was a, a legit shoot as far as we know, the, uh, they're going to back whatever the reaction is. She goes on to say, I feel like these stores, these Macy's, the Gucci's, the PNC banks, they're not here for us. The city puts way more money and investment in spending time and protecting their spaces and making sure that they exist. Our people are constantly being pushed out of the city. I will support the looters till the end of the day. If that's what they need to do in order to eat, then that's what you got to do to eat. She also, um, considering herself somewhat of a historian, apparently, talked about uh, winning has come through riots. Winning has come through constant, constant work, which she calls riots. The only people that can undermine our movement are the police, our oppressors. And then us when we don't believe in the people that we're fighting with, that we're rioting with, that we're stealing with, that we're looting with. The police are the only ones that can undermine our movement, you know, the oppressors. So think of Miss Atkins' words every time you see somebody putting the uh, BLM logo on their social media or wearing the T-shirt or posting a sign or writing a check. Five, six, I don't know, maybe seven figure checks to the Black Lives Matter Marxist organization that endorses, has so many of its corporate financed activist leaders endorsing violence and looting. Are you kidding? Best spread the word and time about time to call some people out and make sure that you understand where they stand on the issue. Make some people uncomfortable like they would and not like they would in the sense of do it peacefully and just get everybody to account for where they were in the moments when it counted. The, the left is not wrong about everything. Where were you in the moments when it counted? I mean, it's an, affer- it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an axiom, so it's not any great insight on their part. The question is germane nonetheless. And we know where Black Lives Matter is. The podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. And um, I like this piece in Human Events, uh, humanevents.com, co-authored by our friend uh, Dr. Henry Miller from the Pacific Research Institute. He uh, starts with a bit of a thought experiment. Uh, after the Titanic collides with the iceberg, it became necessary to allocate uh, seats on the lifeboats, right? Uh, I won't break into my Celine Dion, but uh, you've seen the movie. You know the story. Uh, more people than there were places on the lifeboats. So how do you determine who gets the seats? It was women and children first, as we famously recall. Sort of a commentary on the cultural norm about life, right? a child's life more valuable, not in God's eyes, but in terms of days of life lost, a real calculation, a life not yet that has a chance to have fully developed as opposed to you know, the older gentleman who's lived a more complete life. We make we actually in the real world, we used to make those judgments until we went into this fictional world where we delude ourselves and pretending there's no such thing as making such a judgment. And this thought experiment is, um, in uh, furtherance of answering the question, once we have an approved COVID-19 vaccine, which I know there's about optimism abound, but once we do, let's say it happens, and say it happens even on the timeline being suggested, the end of the year, early next year, 
then what do we do in terms of distribution? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid co-author, Dr. Henry Miller, physician, molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute. He was the founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Dr. Miller, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you, Dan. Thank you. Well, isn't the answer so far what we've heard is that government is going to buy up all the they're they're readying the uh, uh, the, the manufacturing machinery to mass produce and they're going to buy up all the vaccines and distribute them through every country's respective healthcare systems. Well, there are conflicting paths that have been announced for uh, how exactly the vaccine is going to get out. So the the government just uh, contracted with a, a very very large drug distribution company called McKesson, which normally would be sending vaccine to uh, pharmacies and doctor's offices and uh, and so on throughout the country. The other uh, pathway that's been alluded to is uh, President Trump has referred several times to the military being involved in distributing this. Uh, these vaccines and getting them out to people very quickly. So we have we have two alternative paths. But I think, as you alluded to in your intro, um, more interesting is how we're going to decide who gets priority, who goes to the head of the line for the very first uh, doses of vaccine. Well, and also and, to also to who wants to go to the head of the line. I mean, you would think it may, you know there probably be consensus built around healthcare workers, right, frontline healthcare workers. But once you get past that. It gets a little dicey, both in terms of who gets priority and who wants priority, since there's a significant percentage of population saying, at least according to some surveys, that uh, I wouldn't take the vaccine even if one were developed. Well, yeah, but in a, in a sense, that's a separate issue uh, because people who don't want it won't get it, shouldn't get right. it, shouldn't, it, it shouldn't have to get it. Right. Now, we, we could talk about uh, whether it, it could be required for kids to go back to school and uh, and individual private sector entities uh, like meatpacking uh, companies requiring it for their workers and so on, but but it, again that's that's a related uh, but somewhat different issue. Um, what intrigued me about this this question of who goes to the head of the line, as you said, assuming that people want to be in the line at all, uh, is that there are elements inevitably of medicine science ethics and politics involved in this Uh, politics from the point of view that because as you said the government has bought up uh, the rights to hundreds of millions of doses of this uh, some international organizations like the world health organization uh, recently said that uh, countries should distribute the vaccine first to those who are most vulnerable around the world well that's just not going to happen right Uh, what politician uh, in the U.S., for example, is going to send the first doses uh, to uh, Tanzania or Southeast Asia uh, when Americans are getting sick and dying from this. So so the, the politics, I think, is fairly obvious. There's a lot of hand-waving from organizations like WHO. But uh, but getting down to the, uh, to the nuances of who goes to the head of the line in this country uh, – First-line responders is is an obvious uh, first group. Uh, But beyond that, do we uh, we give it to the most vulnerable in the population uh, by virtue of age or uh, comorbidities, uh, or uh, do we give it to uh, people who are working in uh, important industries but in tight quarters? Well, uh, uh, Dr. Mill, let's hold it there, and let's pick up uh, some more of those questions that you're posing as well as perhaps some 
answers or suggested uh, sources for answers. Uh, more with Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute. Right after. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Dr. Henry Miller, who's a physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute. He was the founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. We're having a very interesting conversation about a very real world problem, actually a real world problem we hope we have, which is a vaccine and then the production and distribution of it the politics of prioritization. And uh, Dr. Miller, before the break, you were talking about frontline healthcare workers. That's an obvious one. But then do you go to those most vulnerable to the disease or then do you go to people in, quote unquote, essential jobs and essential industries? Do you have uh, look in, in this environment? Do you have identitarian politics introduce itself, uh, not just older, but older and black or older and Latino, because we know that um, Black Americans as a group are in uh, have more comor- more comorbidities than their white counterparts, all things uh, else being equal. So it, it, there's a lot of cross currents there, political ones. Absolutely. And I'm not going to make value judgments about those except to say that I think the science and the medical evidence from the clinical trials should be, if not absolutely dispositive, very influential. They should be the, the major criteria. So, for example, the the clinical trials will tell us whether overall the drug is safe and effective, but there may be subpopulations in which there's insufficient data to know whether, Mm. for example, we get get a sufficient immune response in the elderly who don't mount as good an immune response. We may find that certain blood type groups have a a greater effectiveness of the vaccine. And so should they get priority because the vaccine will have a greater impact in that subpopulation? Uh, There may not be enough kids. In fact, there probably won't be because most of the trials are being done in, uh, in people who are at least teenagers. So, you know, there are a lot of considerations here, and that's a good rationale for, as the government has done, asking professional groups, expert groups, for guidance on uh, allocation of the early vaccines. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I think it's a, a, it's a much more fascinating question than it would appear at first blush when you start to think about it, because it's really going to be like holding up a mirror to our culture in terms of the arguments that are being made. I mean, how quickly do we descend into Lord of the Flies here if uh, there's a, a belief that uh, whatever vaccine is ultimately developed is really a, a sustained uh, protection, offers sustained protection against the virus for people. And that's just about everybody who want to resume their pre-COVID life as quickly as possible. You know, you can start seeing people throwing kids out of the way to get to the vaccine is my point. You're absolutely right. And there's another, still another interesting issue embedded in that observation. And that's that FDA and its guidance to industry on developing coronavirus vaccines said that any vaccine needs to be at least 50% effective in order to be approved. Well, if it's only, say, 60% effective and only half of the 
U.S. population opts for the vaccine once it's widely available. That means only 30% of the U.S. population would be protected, would be immune as a result of, uh, of vaccination. So that's another consideration. But is the good news um, on that front is even if you have a relatively small percentage of the population, a minority of the population that's immune through vaccination, you have uh, a growing percentage of the population that's immune through the development and expression of antibodies, as we're seeing in places like New York State and even uh, this week, Ron DeSantis in Florida, antibody testing from Florida's drive through sites has ranged from 20 percent to 27 percent positive over the past five days. That's an important point. And, and, and some good news uh, for a change, in addition, is that uh, we're getting more data on T-cell immunity. There are two kinds of white blood cells involved in the immune, immune response. B cells, which make antibodies, and T cells, which confer immunity by action of the cells themselves. So there is one subset of T cells that kills virus-infected cells. There's another subset called memory cells that uh, remembers having been challenged by a virus or some other substance and then is activated when it sees it again. So the, the T cell response is complementary to the production of antibodies. And there's increasing evidence that that's important and it's present in a large number of patients, uh, subjects who have not been symptomatic. So we're, we're getting better news about approaching herd immunity or some semblance of that as we go along. And the, the news um, that we're getting about the progress on clinical trials, various uh, uh, enterprises in pursuit of a vaccine, uh, should we be as optimistic as some of the politicians are suggesting we should be? Do you think that it's realistic that we're on track for um, a effective vaccine, uh, you know, even if it's 50 or 60 percent effective, as you were describing, but, you know, by the end of the year or first quarter of next year, or is it still too soon to tell? I think uh, the end of this year is overly optimistic. The good news is that what we're seeing in these very early reports of phase one and early phase two clinical studies is what one would expect for a good vaccine. It doesn't prove it because you need to see actual protection from the infection in the clinical trials in large, large numbers of people. But we're seeing the right kinds of antibody responses uh, that is uh, somewhat encouraging. Uh, it's interesting, though, that um, uh, it, it, there are several factors working uh, toward or against the um, uh, testing of the vaccines. Uh, on the one hand, as we suppress the uh, rate of infections, the distribution of infections uh, with uh, hand washing and masks and sheltering and so on, uh, it, makes, it reduces the number of infections uh, in the population. But we, in order to test a vaccine, you need to have infections because the nature of the clinical testing is you compare a number of infections in the placebo group with a number of infections in the vaccine-exposed group. And if you don't have sufficient uh, infections in the placebo group, you don't have statistical power in order to determine that there is a difference, that the vaccine works in uh, people who have been uh, injected with it. So, uh, you know, we just need to, to see the data. And that's one of the reasons that I think that um, uh, the optimism 
about um, an approval by the end of this year is, is too optimistic. He's Dr. Henry Miller, physician, molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, and the founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Dr. Miller, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Always good to be with you. Thank you, Ben. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. And I, I love putting politicians' rhetoric up against the reality. So, for example, Chicago Mayor Triple Threat, that's uh, Lori Lightfoot to those not familiarized with my vernacular. Uh, This is what she said to the question of whether people are fleeing Chicago as they are so many other big cities. I'm not concerned about people fleeing the city. This is a great city. Not concerned about people fleeing the city. It's not the same thing as saying they're not because she knows they are. So sort of of a workaround. One way to uh, get a handle, at least directionally, on out-migration or in-migration is through U-Haul rentals. I love these uh, looks at uh, the uh, differential pricing for U-Haul rentals. Uh, Eric Felton writes about this in Washington Examiner. For, uh, for example, before the um, recent escape from New York began uh, in January, Manhattan was ninth among top growing cities in the country. To maintain inventory in New York these days, U-Haul is charging people roughly twice as much to take a truck out of the Big Apple as to bring one in. For example, if you need a big 26-foot box truck to move your stuff from Manhattan to West Palm Beach, it will cost you $3,800, $3,900 round numbers. Go to West Palm to Manhattan, and it costs you $2,100. So $3,900 to go out of New York to Florida, West Palm specifically. $2,100 to come back into New York. Brooklyn to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. That uh, will set you back $2,600. Chapel Hill to Brooklyn, $492. By a factor of six is the difference. Uh, He writes this, Felton, it's an unambiguous measure of the current attractiveness of living in Brooklyn that moving their costs less than one-fifth of what you're charged just to get the hell out. And so he comes up with this game, pick two scraps of paper and just start. You can go right on the Yohal website. I've done it many a time. And you just put in a date for pickup in different cities and then reverse the, the pickup and drop off. And you see the differentials that give you some sense of which direction the population is flowing. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he goes, he, he provides another example. Before you start betting, though, it's worth becoming familiar with the magnitude of the current desperation migration. Here are a couple of examples to illustrate the uh, flight from certain to to, uh, demonstrate the flight. If you want to move from L.A. to Phoenix, U-Haul is two grand to go from Phoenix to L.A., 186 bucks. How about Portland? A truck to take you away from there, Portland to Boise, Idaho, twelve hundred dollars. Boise, Idaho to Portland, ninety one dollars. 1,200 versus 91 to make the same trip, but it's just where you're picking up and dropping off. This is great. I just did it uh, for Chicago to Nashville. I'm in Chicago. A lot of Chicagoans moving to Nashville and and Dallas and Charleston and South Florida, too. But easy one, Chicago to Nashville. Uh, You want to go Chicago to Nashville, uh, $1,110. Nashville to come to Chicago, just about one-fourth of that, $363. And uh, that that lines up with the people 
that we know from the raw numbers, from the intermittent census numbers, are fleeing California, Illinois, New York for places like North Carolina, Tennessee, Arizona. Really easy way to illustrate this to your friends who uh, otherwise are listening to the claptrap of politicians like Lori Lightfoot. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. We played and talked about this uh, campaign video yesterday, but I want to play it again to make sure people catch it. Uh, Kim Klasik is a Republican candidate for Congress in Maryland 7, running against uh, the incumbent Democrat, Equisium Fume, former NAACP head, who replaced Elijah Cummings after his passing. Uh, she put together a video of her walking around inner city Baltimore, which is the district, and uh, just reciting what's happened to inner city Baltimore and on whose watch. And she uh, does so. The video is really well done. She's very well spoken. She's attractive and put together. And she doesn't mince words. It's uh, really something. Do you care about black lives? The people that run Baltimore don't. I can prove it. Walk with me. They don't want you to see this. I'm Kim Klasik. This is Baltimore, the real Baltimore. This is the reality for black people every single day. Crumbling infrastructure, abandoned homes, poverty, and crime. Baltimore has been run by the Democrat Party for 53 years. What is the result of their decades of leadership? Baltimore is one of the top five most dangerous cities in America. The murder rate in Baltimore is 10 times the U.S. average. The Baltimore poverty rate is over 20%. Homicide, drug, and alcohol deaths are skyrocketing in our city. Do you believe Black Lives Matter? I do. The vast majority of crime in Baltimore is perpetrated against black people, who make up 60% of the population. So why don't we care about our communities? The Democrat Party have betrayed the black people of Baltimore. If the politicians walk the streets like I do, they would see exactly how their policies and corruption affects us. If they don't want to see it, they don't want you to see this. Go to any Baltimore neighborhood and ask this question. Do you want to defund the police? No. No. Absolutely not. I had three sons killed in Baltimore City. And I think if we defund the police, office, it's going to be worse than that. So no, I'm opposed to that. What are you going to defund the police for? Why? How do you defend your city, your community? Families are losing people. It's not just Baltimore. The worst place for a black person to live in America is a Democrat-controlled city. It's 2020. Name a blue city where black people's lives have gotten better. Try. I'll wait. Look at this. How are children supposed to live here and play here? Democrats think black people are stupid. They think they can control us forever. 
that we won't demand better and that we'll keep voting for them forever, despite what they've done to our families and our communities. Are they right? I'm Kim Klasik and I'm running for Congress because I actually care about black lives. All black lives matter. Our communities matter. Baltimore matters. And black people don't have to vote Democrat. I will say something I've said before on this show, that if we're going to beat back the cultural Marxists in this country, that would transform America into something it was never intended to be and should not be, then it's going to be led by black Americans. It's going to be black Americans like Kim Klasik who lead the way, really is. Well, and the other thing it does, too, even if she doesn't win that race and it's a it's an uphill race, the other thing it does with, with the way videos like that get around these days, even more so than, say, four years ago or even two years ago, you know, continues to um, community continues to be built online in a way that uh, increases at least uh, arithmetically every day. And so um, it's a way to get around having to use the filters, even of conservative news sources, much less the the legacy media the D.C. press corps types, the left press. So you can do it yourself and have a bigger audience than, you know, every show on MSNBC combined, which Kim Klasik does now and good for her. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friends Diamond and Silk. They are the stars of the documentary Democrats, and they are the authors of the new book, Uprising, Who the Hell Said You Can't Ditch and Switch? You can't tell Diamond and Silk that. Diamond and Silk, thanks for joining us, ladies. Appreciate it. Oh, my God. Thank you all. Thank you, Thank for, you having for having us. us. What, do you, what do you think about uh, Ms. Klasik and, and uh, young, oh. young black Americans like that that are, you know, willing to stand up and take the heat to say this just doesn't make sense anymore? It's so great. It's great to see the great awakening. Right. Not yes. only the great awakening, the uprising. I think she has a chance at winning this. And the black Americans that she was talking about, they said, no. I don't want to see our police department or the police to fund it. Mm-hmm. Those are the voters. That's right. Those are who you have to convince. Okay, go to the polls and vote for me so that I can change this. And right now, it shouldn't really be about the party. It should be about the person the that person. really want to make change. That's right. And so when we looked at the video, we saw the passion. And yes, I think she can win it. And I also saw the destruction where you had Mr. Elijah Cummings, God rest his soul, we know he's gone on, but to have money coming into that particular city and not to even have enough common sense to buy and purchase decon to kill the rats, to just see the complete destruction. Where did all of that money go to for all of those many years? That's right. Yeah, that's people question. are skimming from the top and leaving the American people left at the bottom. That's right. And I'm with her. I believe Black Lives Matter. Hey, I believe all lives all matter. Lives. And I believe those people in Baltimore. Can, can you can you help me understand what uh, Kamala Harris, I don't know if you watched her speech last night, but in her speech last night, she said that um, none of us are free until all of us are free. I, I, I don't know who she's talking about. What what does that mean? Oh, well, well, she should be talking to herself because let me tell you something. Remember the people that she done had locked up. Mm-hmm. She had locked up for doing the same thing she was doing that was getting high smoking weed. That's right. I can't. I don't know what to make of Kamala. The only thing, I, when I look at Jim Crow Joe and Kamala Harris, I see a Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. One, side, one wrote a crime bill, the other one enforced it. That's I mean, right. that's what I see to decimate black families, black communities. And when you look at the, what's happening in the streets, when you see black young people out there looping and committing all kinds of criminality and they're depicting that on television. Mm -hmm. That is a function of uh, 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 where's the parents? Some of these kids are not even being raised in a two-parent home. That's a function of how you were raised. Mm -hmm. Because we were raised with a mother and father where you better not 
think you were going to go out there and act a fool in the streets That's like that. Right. But here's the thing. Where are the black leaders? Where is Kamala Harris? Because she called herself black today. Mm-hmm. Where is she at right. to say, hey, wait a minute, black America. Now, you don't go in committing crimes like this. You mm-hmm. don't be breaking in Macy's and stuff, selling these people stuff, and leave these people alone. That's right. But ain't none of them said any of that. Mm-hmm. But then they want to take and they want to deem Diamond and Silk, oh, they just too, they over political. Don't let them talk. Because, honey, we will let black America know that's not how we act. That's this right. is not how we solve problems. That's right. We write about it, all of it in the book. Yeah, y'all got to get the book uprising, diamondandsilkbook.com. We write about so many things in the book, our experience. And, y'all, we got a new show on Newsmax that come on on the weekend, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So we're going to break down the DNC convention. That's it's going right. to be fun, the show this weekend. Yeah. Now, um, I'm going to think about the one thing question, so you're going to have to give me some time on that. But uh-huh. um, while I'm thinking, uh, I know you uh, ladies are from North Carolina, swing state. Yeah. What, what's your sense of where Trump is in North Carolina, uh, in the black community in North Carolina? And then if there's anything that should be extrapolated from what you're feeling about Trump in a swing state like North Carolina for the election writ large. Well, listen, I believe that the president is going to win North Carolina, not only North Carolina, but a lot more of these other states. When I go out and I talk to people, people know that it is something wrong. They don't like it. And they know this ain't no Trump fault. That's right. Because they're looking at how the Democrats are reacting. Mm -hmm. You want to blame him for the loss of jobs. But if the governor will open up the state fully, people can go back to work. This is all being orchestrated, designed to hurt President Donald J. Trump. And it's going to backfire in the Democrat why do you think they spent the last three days bashing and blaming President Trump instead of coming up with solutions? Nobody had a solution. Right. But everybody wanted to place blame. Why they not blaming China? All planned, organized, designed to hurt President Donald J. Trump. And even when you look at the news outlets and the ones that were supposed to be on our side, all designed and planned to hurt President Donald J. Trump. See, they wanted to go back to where they can continue to get their kickbacks in their Patty whack. Mm-hmm. That's what's wrong with them. They got they they, they hand in the cookie jar. Yeah. Uh, gravy trains are coming to an end, mm-hmm. and they're mad about it. President Trump is going up against the pharmaceutical companies. Where the Democrats, President Trump is started to stop, uh, trying to stop all of this human trafficking that's going on at the borders in the tunnels. Where the, where the Democrats at on that? Yeah. Ain't saying nothing about that. If you love your children, you better vote Trump. They are diamond and silk. Donald Trump supporters clearly stars of the documentary Democrats. Authors of the new book Uprising. Who the hell? said you can't ditch and switch diamond and silk.com is where you get the book and everything else diamond and silk related and they're on news yeah. of course they're diamond uh, and silk crystal clear. building uh, a media empire our diamond and silk diamond and silk ladies ah. thanks for joining us appreciate it <laughs> thank, thank you, you for having, having us, us. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I'm the Colorado cake artist, and I believe in artistic freedom for all. Jack Phillips' Masterpiece Cake Shop out of Colorado is back in the news. You may remember his case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, his case against the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which attempted to uh, punish him for not making a cake for a gay couple and making a wedding cake for them. He was happy to serve the gay couple, but 
he couldn't make that cake because he didn't want to participate in a ceremony that ran afoul of his religious beliefs. Went all the way up to the high court, and in a narrowly tailored decision, the court found by a 7-2 to two margin in Jack Phillips's favor, saying the Colorado Civil Rights Commission did not employ religious neutrality in their punishment of Jack Phillips. Well, that has uh, not begotten peace and quiet for Jack Phillips. He's been the subject of all other efforts, uh, all new efforts to uh, undermine his business, uh, get him back into court, jackpot him, you know, expose him as a bigot. So this op-ed he writes in Newsweek is particularly important. A gentleman who knows something of what he speaks uh, on the matter of tolerance of dissenting views and is actually consistent on the topic where it's very difficult to find those who consider themselves on the left in 2020 America who are similarly intellectually consistent. In more than my in uh, my more than 25 years as a cake artist, I've kept a simple policy, writes Phillips. I serve everyone, but I cannot create cakes that express every message or celebrate every event. Policy is fairly common, really. It's true for many creative professionals. Some messages I cannot express through my custom art, no matter who asks for them, because doing so would violate my core beliefs, including religious beliefs. Every person has the right to peacefully live and work consistent with his or her deepest beliefs, right? That would seem to be a statement uh, devoid of controversy, maybe in a bygone era, not today. A fellow cake artist, April Anderson, agrees with me. April creates cakes in Detroit, Michigan. One day she received an online order for a cake that expressed a message she doesn't agree with. April identifies as a lesbian, and the cake she was asked to make expressed opposition to same-sex marriage. April felt she couldn't express that message through her art. That's a choice she had the right to make, argues Jack Phillips. Our Constitution protects the freedom of all Americans to express and not express whatever they want, no matter whether others in the community or in the halls of government disagree with that expression. I agree, and I agree with Jack Phillips and his view on April Anderson and her uh, desire not to and her choice as to whether or not to make the cake that was requested. Absolutely. Phillips uh, continues, April has the freedom to choose the messages she will express through her custom cakes, and no government official should be able to force her to go against her conscience. And, of course, all those on the left, the LGBTQ community, will rally to April Anderson's defense, as will the media, as they have. Um, She, um, instead of making the cake, uh, she said she, uh, um, because she felt uncomfortable, Uh, She decided to create a cake for the customer, but not the cake he requested. She instead made a rainbow decorated cake that expressed a different message. Uh, So there you go. Um, I don't know whether the customer ultimately accepted the cake or not, but uh, still, rather than declining, she has to make the point. Fine, whatever. Do, Do what she wants. It's not an issue for the state. It's an issue for deciding which cake maker you're going to patronize. Private decisions. So far, there are a lot of parallels between April's experience and mine. The principles are the same. Both April and I were asked to create a cake that went against our consciences, and we looked for other ways to serve the customer without compromising our beliefs. But that's where our stories diverge. April has received public praise for her decision to abide her conscience. An interview with Today uh, that she had, very supportive and encouraging. All the mainstream media that has covered her story has affirmed her decision to not express a message she didn't agree with. I've had a very different experience, thus the Supreme Court case I mentioned at the outset. I declined to use my artistic skills to express a message I didn't agree with. I ended up in court. In fact, I had to take my case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. All the while, I faced harassment and threats from activists for my beliefs, not to mention highly critical media attention. Even though the court ruled in his favor, I faced two more legal actions since then for making the exact same decision to choose which messages I expressed through my custom cake art. 
On the same day the Supreme Court decided to hear my first case, a local attorney called my shop to request a custom pink and blue cake that would celebrate a gender transition. The same attorney contacted me again a few months later to request a cake depicting Satan smoking marijuana. Those requests, much like the one April faced, appear to be setups. I declined both of them because those cakes express messages that go against my core beliefs. Nobody should be forced to create or express a message he or she disagrees with. The recurring theme here. But the disparate treatment of Jack Phillips versus April Anderson is also a recurring theme in our culture. Phillips concludes tolerance is a two way street. I'll support your right to live consistent with your beliefs. All I ask is that people respect my right to do the same. Sorry, Jack, no dice. No dice here. We're all on one big college campus now, right? Andrew Sullivan from, uh, I don't know, eight months ago. Pre-pandemic. Iowa State University professor. Coming under fire after she issued a syllabus threatening discipline against students who undertook projects that opposed Black Lives Matter and abortion. Labeled a labeled a, quote, giant warning in all caps on the portion of the syllabus uh, banned instances of othering. Ah, the language again. Just like we talked about with the Wisconsin Department of Corrections earlier. Instances of othering. I'm not suppressing your speech. I'm preventing you from othering. I'm not opposed to uh, dissent. I'm opposed to othering. Othering? Sexism, ableism, homophobia, you know, all the phobias and the isms. The uh, syllabus goes on. The same goes for any papers and projects, instances of othering. You cannot choose any topic that takes at its base that one side doesn't deserve the same basic human rights as you do, i.e., no arguments against gay marriage, abortion, Black Lives Matter, etc. That should actually be E.G., you ignoramus. This professor is Chloe Clark at Iowa State University, and she is a cyclone of ignorance, isn't she? No arguments against gay marriage, abortion, Black Lives Matter. I take this seriously. Disciplinary action is what she threatened the students with. Well, this became known on campus. Uh, Young America's Foundation released a screenshot of it. The course is English 250. That's a 200-level course. Wow. Hmm. For written, oral, visual, and electronic composition, as long as you take the right view. Uh, the university said the syllabus was inconsistent with its commitment to the First Amendment. It's very restrained. After reviewing this issue with a faculty member, the syllabus has been corrected to ensure it's consistent with university policy. Oh, well, that just uh, fixes everything, doesn't it? The fact that you have a Jacobin ignoramus as a 200-level English professor at your university, that's not a problem. You just have to make sure she doesn't memorialize her views on the syllabus, the views that you otherwise allow her to impose on students, just as long as it doesn't become public. Yeah, sorry, Jack. Uh, that's not the way it is with the left, and it never really has been. That's not what the way it is with people who are looking to jackpot other people for the purposes of subjugating them. It's about power, about lordship, about domination. And uh, it can be um, and, and, and you can find examples in the seemingly innocent world of baked goods 
or are they much less innocent world of so-called higher education? This is Dan Proff. Profshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And earlier in the program, we uh, spoke of uh, Kamala Harris, her speech on Wednesday evening at the DNC. Talked a little bit of uh, compare and contrast on what she's saying about uh, race and Joe Biden today versus what she was saying as a presidential aspirant just a few months ago. The same can be said of uh, her position on so many issues, including health care. Remember, part of the reason that Kamala Harris's campaign cratered was because she couldn't get her story straight on the big issues being prosecuted by her competitors like Bolshevik Bernie. Medicare for all, which she signed on to as a co-sponsor. But she couldn't figure out if uh, private health insurance was going to be eliminated or not. First, she was very confident that private health insurance was going to be eliminated. And then she seemed to say that uh, Medicare for all, as she envisioned it, didn't eliminate private health insurance for 170 million Americans. Didn't uh, exactly inspire a lot of confidence. Kamala versus Kamala. Well, listen, the idea is that everyone gets access to medical care and you don't have to go through the process of going through an insurance company, having them give you approval, going through the paperwork, all of the delay that may require. Let's eliminate all of that. Let's move on. And uh, she reiterated that position many times. So for people out there who like their insurance, they don't get to keep it. Let's eliminate all of that. Let's move on. Yeah, let's move on from private health insurance. Then she subsequently said that uh, that same Medicare for all proposal in which she's a co-sponsor does not eliminate private health insurance. And we shouldn't move on for more on all of this. Now that she is. reimagined herself as a vice presidential running mate of Joe Biden. We're pleased to be joined again by Sally Pipes. She is the president CEO and Thomas W. Smith fellow in healthcare policy at the Pacific Research Institute, author of False Premise, False Promise, the disastrous reality of Medicare for all. Sally, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on again. Uh, so I'm not sure it ma- for having me on again. Uh, so I'm not sure it matters that much which Kamala we're supposed to believe the one who wanted to eliminate private health insurance and didn't seem particularly concerned about it versus the one that said I, we weren't we're, my proposed my proposal or the proposal I co-signed does not do that because it's politically unpopular for me to take that position. Uh, I think it suggests that um, the only honest person running uh, around in Democrat socialist circles these days is Bernie Sanders, who's straight away about eliminating private health insurance. Well, you're absolutely right. And as in the clip, I mean, she did sign on to Bernie's um, single payer health care plan, which means there would be no private coverage at all. And just the other day, Senator Sanders said we have to first elect Joe Biden and then we will move the country, push the country further left. I mean, he is definitely very much involved in the health care negotiations. He was on the unity task force on health care. And, you know, um, Kamala Harris, I think, really, she has flip flopped on the issue. But deep down, she really believes in single-payer Medicare for all, like let's get rid of all that, the insurance companies. You know, when she was in Iowa, remember, she met, she went to a nursing home and the 90-year-old lady said after she was talking about getting rid of, you know, all of the private insurance and the, the lady said, well, just leave my health, just leave my health care alone. And she was stumped on it, but she really believes in expanding, whether it's a stepping stone approach, going slowly there as presidential nominee Joe Biden 
wants to do, but he they all want single payer in the long run. And, and just remind us again, since uh, these are these are Joe Biden, supposedly the moderate in the party. Uh, and uh, I, you yeah. know, once upon a time, a, gov- a formal government takeover of healthcare wasn't seen as a mo- seen as a moderate position. But re- remind us the implications of that for those 170 million Americans who have private health insurance. Right. The polling by Kaiser Family Foundation shows that 56 percent of people, when polled, like the idea support single-payer health care. But when they're asked the subsequent questions, well, this will mean that you'll lose your private coverage, support goes down to 37%. When they're told you would have to pay higher taxes for this, support goes down to 27%. So people don't understand what Medicare for all means, but what it does mean is that you would lose your private coverage. And as you mentioned, 170 million people have employer-sponsored coverage. And in the latest poll, 71% like it. So they really don't understand that single payer would mean the government would run the whole healthcare system. At least in the post office, there's competition from FedEx and UPS. There wouldn't be competition. And there would be, just like in Canada, where I'm from, long waiting lists, um, ration care. The older you are, you're less likely. I mean, the average wait in Canada today from seeing a primary care doc to getting treatment by a specialist is 21 weeks over five months. And you never call up a specialist, your dermatologist, and book an appointment. You first have to go to your primary care doctor, or GP as we call them, and then you're waiting 21 weeks to get that appointment with the specialist. People just have to understand what it means. Government can only spend so much money on health care. And we're a very rich country. Yes, we spend 17% of GDP on health care. Americans are impatient, and they want to get their health care now, and they would be absolutely over the top if yeah. the government took it over. Well, our inability to understand trade-offs is really costing us not just to the healthcare system, but with and dealing with uh, the pandemic as well. And there's the beautiful lie of the uh, free lunch, which you're describing. And then there's the the ugly fear mongering that's uh, associated with COVID-19 reporting. I want to get to the latter uh, right after this. More with Sally Pipes, president, CEO, and Thomas W. Smith fellow in healthcare policy at the Pacific Research Institute, author of False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. We'll be right back. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Sally Pipes, President, CEO, and Thomas W. Smith, Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Pacific Research Institute, author of the book False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All, which we were speaking of. And the other thing that was interesting just on Medicare for All before we turn our attention to COVID is the uh, uh, executive order that President Trump issued on suspending the payroll tax for the remainder of the year below a certain income level. The hue and cry from <laughs> those on the left, mainly opponents of the president, that he was jeopardizing the financial viability of Medicare. Um, the payroll tax doesn't provide the necessary funding to support Medicare in terms of the obligations that Medicare throws off, given the way that it's structured and how it's expanded since 1965. So that's sort of another beautiful lie to begin with. But it just speaks to the point. Uh, it just speaks to the notion that at some point there has to be like a long, sustained conversation about inputs and outputs, about trade-offs, about opportunity costs. Uh, it probably should be happening at the K through 12 level, but it doesn't seem to be based on some of the uh, polling data you were describing before the break. If you look at Vice President Joe Biden, now the, the candidate, one of his ideas in his health care plan is to reduce the age of eligibility for Medicare from yes. 65 down yeah. to 60. Yeah. So that'll add 22 million people to the Medicare role. 
And the thing is that the, the Medicare trustees have said that the Part A, the hospital trust fund, will probably be bankrupt in just six years until we're going to add 22 million people and $100, million, $100 billion. This is just pie in the sky. So the American people need to understand what these ideas that Harris and Biden are telling them, because it's going to be a disaster for our health care and particularly for research and development, innovation, et cetera. Well, and uh, research, development, innovation, boy, that's uh, sort of the uh, topic uh, of the day, given the Operation Warp, Warp Speed pursuit of a vaccine or vaccines, plural, uh, as well as therapeutics to deal with COVID-19. This would seem like an opportune time to try to you know, help people put the pieces together of you have this sort of government takeover where they're the driver. You know, healthcare becomes government centric the way that K through 12 education is. And you're going to have the same results, which you're not going to particularly enjoy. And when you think back to the beginning, early on in the pandemic, it was the CDC that, you know, had faulty testing things. That was the government agency and Operation Warp Speed. President Trump signed an executive order a year ago, September, which would allow public-private partnerships. And so we're seeing, you know, where are, where around the world are the developments in new vaccines and, you know, antivirals? The vaccine work is all being done basically in the United States, whether it's Johnson and Johnson, Moderna, Regen- Pfizer. Yeah, Regeneron. And, and so, right. so this is where this is we, we're the we don't have price controls on pharmaceuticals. We do value innovation. Cost 2.6 billion to bring a drug from the, an idea to the market. Only 12% make it, but it's here in this country where the best vaccines, cancer drugs, immunotherapies are all developed here, not in countries that have price controls. And even in countries with price controls, the, the companies, whether it's AstraZeneca, whether it's Santa Fe, whether it's GlaxoSmithKline, they don't do their R&D in the UK or in France or in Germany. They do it in America because they know how expensive it is. We need to keep this, this pipeline open. So because as we get older, we want to be able to have access to the best vaccines and treatments for um, diseases that are very serious. It's, it's sort of remarkable, even as big pharma is um, you know, driving the push for a vaccine, and uh, some of the demagoguery and the demonization of big pharma has been tamped down a bit. You still have those on the left calling for what you said we don't have price controls to, to you know, for the government to manage big pharma so that uh, the vaccine, once it's developed, is distributed properly according to prioritized, probably identitarian uh, uh, some identitarian progression and so on and so forth. So, I mean, they just can't help themselves from killing or attempting to kill the golden goose, even when it's laying golden eggs. Well, exactly. And, you know, when you read um, Biden's plan, the Democratic uh, health care plan is, was approved on Tuesday. I mean, they want price controls. They want to get rid of, of the private sector. They want to ha- be able to, you know, the government, they want the government to negotiate uh, with the insurance companies on what rates will be paid. This is going to be a, a complete disaster. They want to import drugs from um, cunt, uh, uh, countries like Canada um, that do have price controls. And in many cases, the drugs that are available here aren't even available in U.S. in, in Canada, if, even when the U.S. companies offer them at a lower price because the Patented Medicines Prices Review Board in the government decides they're still too, too expensive. And Canada doesn't have, you know, they have a population of 35 million as the officials in government have said, we can't supply the U.S. market because we hardly have enough drugs for ourselves. So some of these ideas, but certainly Biden and Harris, you know, want price controls. They want to have the government negotiate 
uh, drug prices. They want to change the way, remember, under Medicare Part D, um, the drug uh, program, that the, the government can't negotiate the prices, but they want to make change that so that, and I think if, if the Democrats win the presidency and Congress, this will be one of the things that they they want to do. Uh, everything uh, involving COVID-19 has been politicized to varying extents now. What what uh, right. for what has been the most frustrating for you? There's so much to choose from, I know, but well, maybe the frustrating the sense of what do you think is doing the most damage to our ability to effectively respond as best we can to both preserve life and preserve livelihoods. Well, I think that the biggest issue is that people on the on the progressives and people on the left are saying that the COVID pandemic is the reason why we need Medicare for all. And if you look at countries like in England and in in Canada that have socialized systems, look at the the cancellations of cancer surgeries of a lot of um, appointments and things that that are that are needed, and that now in the UK the National Health Service says in within a short time there will be 10 million people on a waiting list to get their various treatments and surgeries because everything is being pushed back because of COVID. And in Canada, it's it's the same thing. People cannot get you know get their get their appointments and things because the hospitals are full of people with COVID, and the fact that you know they're they just don't have the capacity. We have. The United States has the highest number of IC unit beds per capita in, in, in the country, uh, six times as many as in the UK, twice as many as in Canada. So, you know, we don't want to go to a completely government-run uh, system such as in Canada. Britain allows a bit of private coverage. In fact, the other day the National Health Service said they are going to provide $10 billion, 10, $10 billion pounds over four years in funding um, to private hospitals. So that they can get rid of some of these waiting lists that you know are a result as as a result of the NHS and not enough capacity because of COVID. She is Sally Pipes, President and CEO and Thomas W. Smith Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Pacific Research Institute, author of the book False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. Sally Pipes, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Let's close today's program with a little game. Uh, One of these people is Cardi B, the uh, prostitute turned rap star of sorts, I guess. The other is Mary Bruce, who is a senior congressional correspondent for ABC News. One of them is talking about Kamala Harris in advance of her DNC speech. One of them is interviewing Joe Biden. See if you can tell who is the prostitute turned rapper, Cardi B, and who is the ABC senior congressional correspondent, Mary Bruce. Kamala Harris is now moments away from making history. This is a huge moment of significance for women, for women of color, and especially for young girls across this country. Kamala Harris tonight will speak about the country that made her story possible, her American dream, a country where the daughter of immigrants can go on to become the first black woman, the first Asian American to be nominated to be be vice president. But she will say that that country now feels distant under President Trump. And Kamala Harris will be blunt in arguing that Bob 
bottom line, this country is at a key inflection point. And she will say that Joe Biden is the leader who can bring back the country that made her story possible. Well, thinking about uh, the substance of that reporting and the enthusiasm, compare and contrast that with this uh, interview of Joe Biden. I want black people to stop getting killed and no justice for it. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. I just want more stricter laws that is fair to black citizens and, you know, it's fair for cops, too. Yeah, more stricter laws. Mm -hmm. That's fair for black citizens and cops, too. You mean like you're not allowed to murder somebody or you get prosecuted? Uh huh. Black people, we're not asking for sympathy. We're not asking for charity. We are just asking for equality. That's we it. are asking for fairness and we are asking for justice. That is all. We want to feel like Americans. Yeah, and Joe Biden, please stop interrupting. Nobody wants to feel targeted. Nobody wants animosity. We just want the best for us. Everybody wants the best for themselves, their future, and their future. Racism always have have existed, but I feel like right now there's just a lot of tension, and we need somebody to clean that. I'm just so tired of it. Yeah, Joe, stop trying to interrupt. I mean, we know you and Cardi B are on the same wavelength. We got it. Cardi B also, Joe, and Joe on the same way when it comes to, uh, you know, quote-unquote free stuff, like uh, free college. I, of course, want free Medicare. And this is why it's important to have free Medicare Medicare, because look look what's happening right now. You see what? We should have been having free Medicare for a long time. I, of course, think that we need uh, free college education. We're going to have, if I get elected president, free college education. For four years of college, flat out. Anybody with a family less than 125 grand, you're going to get a free education. Everybody gets free education for 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 a, a community college. Yeah, Bernie Sanders was right. Those ideas that were radical just a few short years ago are now mainstream Democrat socialist policy being parroted by Joe Biden to Cardi B of all people. Just in case you were confused as to whether or not Joe Biden is beholden to the Democrat socialists. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again to close out the week tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.